Well, a number of uh, years back, I went caving down at Bungonia. Uh, a friend and I paid our money and we went with a professional guide. Now, at one point, deep in the earth, the guide got us to stop and turn off our headlamps. Oh, I remember the blackness. I, I mean, there was nothing. Uh, you, you could hold your hand right up in front of your face like this and you would not see a thing. I remember thinking to myself at that time, good thing I've got a light. Oh, imagine what I would do without one. I'd, I'd probably fall down some ravine or wander off into some side cavern and be lost forever. Yes, good thing I've got a light. And then I tried to turn it back on. And yes, you've guessed it, nothing, nothing. How did I react at that moment? Well, from memory, I think I squealed like a little girl. Uh, <laughs> see, at that moment, I, I realised an important thing. I realised that when you're 80 metres underground, light is not just helpful, no, it is absolutely necessary. It's the difference between life and death. Well, as we uh, look together this morning at the Bible, we're going to start by travelling back three and a half thousand years in history to hear of another time when light meant the difference between life and death. It's a, a story about the people of Israel. Now, you might remember that God had chosen Israel as his very own special people and that he had made uh, some huge promises to them, uh, that he would love them and uh, protect them and that he would give them a land of their own, uh, the promised land, and that there God would live with them forever. Uh, but for the Israelites, uh, three and a half thousand years ago, when our story takes place, uh, these promises seem far from fulfilled. See, rather than being in any promised land, the Israelites had, in fact, spent the last 400 years in slavery to the great and powerful Egyptian empire, uh, held captive by Pharaoh, the king. Um, sure you remember how the Israelite Moses went to Pharaoh on behalf of God and said, let my people go. And I'm sure you recall Pharaoh's response, no. And how God then sent plague after plague on Egypt, culminating in the death of every firstborn Egyptian son. At which point, finally, Pharaoh relented and then told Moses to get the Israelites out of there. Well, finally, it would seem the Israelites were free to enter the promised land, free at last to take hold of the great blessings of God. But there was still one big problem. See, now that the Israelites had come out of Egypt, they stood at the edge of a massive desert, a great wasteland, separating them from their great hope, life in the promised land. Of course, we here in Australia know something about deserts, don't we? Uh, we know that you, just, you can't just go wandering off into them. Now, the last thing you want to do is get lost in a desert. Deserts are dangerous. Deserts kill. People don't live in deserts. People die in deserts. And here, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Israelite men, women and children. It would be suicide for them to go any further. By all reasoning, it would seem that this place of death, this uh, wilderness, 
would now prevent Israel from ever reaching the promised land. I mean, it would take an absolute miracle for them to get through it. And a miracle is exactly what they get. Uh, Read with me, up on the screen, Exodus chapter 13 from verse 20, where it says, After leaving Succoth, they, that is the Israelites, camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. See, God did provide a miracle for the Israelites. He provided a pillar of smoke that was visible to them in the daytime, the smoke covering an inner flame, that, that the glow of which could be seen throughout the night. It was a pillar of fire that moved, not only showing Israel the way to go, but giving them light and and reassurance as they made their way through the wilderness at night. And so you see, it was a pillar of guidance and protection. In the same way that light is the difference between life and death when you're 80 metres underground, so too this pillar of fire was the difference between life and death for Israel there in the desert. Now the Israelites could find their way through the wilderness. God would show them the way. In fact, for 40 years, God guided Israel through the desert by this pillar of fire. And yes, they did eventually reach the promised land, the land uh, we know as modern-day Israel, where they settled down, just as God had promised. It was an extraordinary time for Israel, such an amazing miracle of God's salvation. In fact, so great was this event in the history of Israel that they created a week-long annual holiday to celebrate it. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles, And it would have been an amazing sight to behold. Uh, The centrepiece of these celebrations took place in the city of Jerusalem at the temple itself. And it involved the lighting of four massive lamps in the temple courtyard. Uh, Four lamps so big that you needed a ladder to climb up and light them. In fact, it's said that the lamps were so big that their glow would light up the whole city for that week, every year. And in addition, each night the the priests would put on their own spectacular light show, uh, performing torch dances uh, while, while the Levites sang and the priestly orchestra played its music. It was uh, the original vivid, if you like. (laughs) And it would have been an awesome thing to be a part of it. Well, as it happens, uh, my family went uh, to Vivid Chatswood last Friday night and uh, we had a really, really fun time uh, enjoying the lights and the band and the food and uh, my kids thought it was absolutely awesome right up until the point I refused uh, to let them go on the Ferris wheel. $8 per person per ride, that is highway robbery. 
parents, be warned, okay? Be warned. But apart from that, uh, we had a really awesome time. There was a real you know, party atmosphere. And yet I reckon uh, that the Feast of Tabernacles would have been, an, it would have been even better. It, it really would have been something to behold. In fact, one rabbi... Uh, long ago, after witnessing the celebrations of the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple courtyard, he wrote that if you haven't seen it with your own eyes, then you haven't seen joy. (laughs) Sounds pretty good, huh? But it wasn't just the beauty of the lights that he was talking about. It was what those lights represented. The pillar of fire that had brought Israel through the dark wilderness. The Feast of Tabernacles was a great celebration of God's guidance and protection and his salvation. Well, I want you to come with me now as we fast forward through history to a time 1,500 years after God's pillar of fire had guided Israel safely through the desert. And uh, once again, the time had come for Israel to celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles And uh, with the celebrations well underway, uh, a certain man uh, went into the temple, the temple courts there in Jerusalem, and he began to speak to the people who had gathered. Uh, The man's name was Jesus. And the words he spoke must have floored anyone who heard them. This is what he said. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So imagine the scene. Jesus is there in the temple courts, the four huge lamps in the background, lamps symbolising the guidance, protection and salvation of God. And then there in that setting, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is claiming to be the one and only God who guides and protects and saves. Just like the pillar of fire was a light to Israel, so now Jesus is claiming to be the light. Not just the light of Israel, but the light of the nations, the light of the whole world. But what does he mean by this? I mean, it's not not like we're all stumbling around in the darkness, is it? Well, actually, yes, it kind of is. Because you see, the Bible says that you and and, uh, and, and me and, and all people are terribly lost. Not in a a literal desert at night, but in the darkness of our sin. Sin. That is our rebellion against the rightful rule of God over us. Sin, those thoughts and words and deeds that demonstrate our rejection of God and his commands. Sin. The evil that separates us from, from the ultimate promised land. Heaven. And the lasting joy and peace that's found there. Sin, the wasteland that brings death, physical and spiritual death. 
Yes, we're all lost, all of us, lost in the dark wasteland of sin. And like people wandering in a desert at night who are, who are blind to, to all kinds of hidden dangers, well, so too we have wandered from God's path of righteousness. And our prospects are grim, unless someone rescues us. And that's exactly what makes Jesus' words here in the temple so marvellous. Because, because, you see, he is offering us a, a way out of the darkness. He's offering to be our guiding light. Now, of course, there are many, many voices in our world that claim to be guiding lights, aren't there? I mean, everyone from, from Muhammad to uh, the Buddha to the Pope... Uh, to the new atheists. But, but take careful note of Jesus' words here. Note what he said. He did not say that he is a light among many. No, he said, I am the light of the world. And we know that he was telling the truth, don't we? On the day Jesus was nailed to the cross, darkness threw its worst at the light. Jesus was killed and and. The light stopped burning for a time. But friends, darkness failed to extinguish the light. Jesus didn't stay dead. He, he burst forth from the tomb in a, in a blaze of glory and put the darkness in its place forevermore. And so while others might promise to give enlightenment, only Jesus can overcome the darkness of our sin. And for many, many of us here this morning, we've taken him up on this offer, haven't we? And we now live in his light. Many of us here this morning following Jesus, trusting in him, listening to his voice in the Bible, relieved to have our sins forgiven, thankful that our lives now have hope and meaning and purpose, assured of one day entering the promised land of heaven where we will be with our God and Saviour forever. Yes, for many of us here this morning, we are incredibly blessed. We have been rescued from darkness and brought into God's wonderful light. But friends, the question for us here this morning is, should we be content with that? I mean, look again at what Jesus said here. Did he say, I am the light of Chatswood? <laughs> no, of course he didn't. No, what did he say? He claimed to be the light of the world, the one and only hope of the entire world. And yet, friends, the fact is the vast majority of people in this world still live in spiritual darkness hopelessly lost in the dark desert of sin. And, as it stands, they are destined for eternal darkness in hell. Look with me at this map of the world put out by the Joshua Project, where we can see at a glance where the light of the gospel is yet to penetrate. Firstly, there are all the green parts, like Australia, where the gospel is well established uh, where the, the light is on, so to speak, uh, where if, if someone wants to know about Jesus, it's 
not hard for them to, to find a church or to buy a Bible or even to switch on and listen to Christian radio. Then there are the, the yellow parts, as in large swathes of Europe where uh, nominal Christianity dominates. You know, people having an historic connection to Jesus, but uh, who have largely forsaken the true gospel. I guess we could say that in these parts, uh, the light is, is dim. And then there are the red parts, stretching through large parts of Asia and northern Africa, where people currently have very, very little hope of ever hearing about Jesus. And we're talking billions of people living in darkness. It's a dreadful, dreadful situation, isn't it? And no, it is just not okay. But you see, that is what makes Mission Month here at Chatswood Presbyterian Church so important and so exciting. I mean, just look, just look with me for a moment at where our 11 mission partners are, are serving, where they currently are or soon will be. Can you see? They're, they're piercing the darkness, shining the light of the gospel where it is least known. And as God's people, as children of light, now that ought to thrill us. Think about it, think about it. There's Stuart and Gail Johnson. There's Sarah Weber, Dan and Megan Ng, along with the ministry of Reach, each taking the light of Christ into the darkness of university campuses and school classrooms here in Australia and in New Zealand to students lost in the darkness of hedonism and atheism. Not to mention all the international students coming from those red countries on the map. There's the Derudis family in Italy, bringing hope to a people vainly trying to earn their way to heaven by doing good works and rescuing sexually trafficked women in the name of Jesus. There's Andrew and Joanna Wong, planning a church in an area of Japan with virtually no other Christian witness. There's the Presbyterian Theological Seminary in India, training Christian workers who go on to penetrate the spiritual darkness of Hinduism as they, as they preach the gospel across that region. There's Meredith, shining light into one of the most unreached ethnic groups on the face of this planet. There's J&B in China, training believers to share Jesus with their workmates, even as the government increasingly clamps down on Christians. There's Egal Vender in Israel, who already this year has led six homeless drug addicts to faith in their Messiah. And then there's our very own Elizabeth, who's even now preparing to take her own gospel torch to the darkness of Dubai. Can you see? Can you see? This is why Mission Month is so important and so exciting in the life of our church. It's our very own festival of lights, our very own spiritual vivid if you like. 
It reminds us to lift our eyes beyond our own little worlds to see God's world. That we might be burdened to pray for the light to pierce the darkness. That we might generously support these light bearers. And that we might even consider picking up our own torch to join them. Because don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of darkness out there. But friends, you know what? God is using us and our mission partners to light it up. And my prayer is that he'll use us more and more and more. I remember that day when I was 80 metres underground after my headlamp wouldn't work after I squealed like a little girl and after we tried in vain to fix my headlamp. I remember uh, the fateful words of my guide. He said, oh, don't worry, you'll be right. As long as you stay close to me and do exactly what I say. Friends, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I stayed so close to that guide that he virtually gave me a piggyback out of that cave. I was just so pleased he was there. I was so thankful that he offered me the light. That's often the case, isn't it, that that light brings joy. The Feast of Tabernacles brought joy to all who saw it. The lights of Vivid bring joy to Sydney. But friends, those joys don't even begin to compare to the joy experienced by a dark soul that comes to Jesus the light of life. That's exactly what our mission partners are offering people. It reminds me of a joyful story involving our mission partner, Egal, in Israel, a story that I'd like to finish with this morning. If you don't know, Egal became a Christian about 12 years ago after spending much of his life stumbling in the darkness of drug addiction and crime Uh, which landed him in jail for 10 years. His life was a black hole of despair uh, until he found Jesus, or as he likes to say, until Jesus found him. Uh, As a missionary, Egal now spends his days calling other Jewish people into the light. And uh, he recently shared this story. Just under a year ago, I met a guy called Vic on the street. He was addicted to hard drugs. I was out doing street outreach and invited him to the pop-up cafe we have for the homeless. Vic accepted my invitation and as he was eating, he told me that he knew me, but I didn't remember him at all. After he had eaten, I made him a cup of tea and we sat and chatted about Jesus and the change he had made in my life. I went through the gospel with him and Vic listened raptly. At the end, Vic looked me straight in the eyes and said, this is impossible. I asked him why he thought that. He went on to tell me that we had been in prison together in 2001. And during that time, he saw me in a fight with another prisoner. And I was so vicious that I had even stabbed the other prisoner. I immediately remembered what he was talking about. And it gave me another opportunity to show him just how much Jesus had changed me. He then simply got up and walked away. I sat there saddened, but not totally surprised at this. However, I committed to pray for him. 
Two months later, the Lord brought a lovely answer to my prayers as Vic arrived at our pop-up cafe once more and asked if he could come to our church's rehab house where I volunteer. Vic is a 42-year-old divorcee. He and his wife immigrated to Israel in 1998 from Uzbekistan. Of the 21 years he has lived in Israel, 16 of them have been spent in jail. His wife divorced him during his first time in prison and he turned to drugs for comfort. He found life outside prison difficult to adjust to. In fact, he only really felt at home in prison. We started to read the Bible together, beginning with the Gospel of John, which Vic really liked. I noticed that the Holy Spirit was slowly at work in Vic's heart and mind. He told me that this was the first time he felt like he had found a family, a sense of belonging since he was in prison. Last week, after our Bible study group, Vic approached me and shared something with me. That night, he had woken up and was in floods of tears with an overwhelming sense of his own sin and need of repentance for all the wrong things he had done. We prayed together as he turned to God in repentance and faith in Jesus as his Messiah and Lord. Please pray for Vic as he seeks to live a new life for Jesus in the land of Israel. <laughs> like that guide did for me, Egol has led Vic out of the darkness and into the light of day, eternal day. And here's a heartwarming picture of, of Vic being baptised recently. What joy, what joy for this man to finally have his sins forgiven. What joy for him to finally belong to God and to his people. Such joy. And yet, friends, as we know, no joy, no joy at all will ever compare to the day when Vic and Egal and you and me and all our mission partners, along with all of God's people, shall finally enter our very own promised land. Oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine the joy of that day? I hear the Ferris wheel's even free. <laughs> Friends, endless, endless joy awaits. So in the meantime, let's celebrate this mission month. Let's get busy praying. Let's get generous in our giving. And let's get serious about reaching our dark world with the light of Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you have not left us to wander and perish in the darkness of our sin, but have given Jesus to be our guiding light. Thank you that he has overcome the darkness of our sin and is now our light of life. Father, we pray that this mission month we'd be inspired to do all we can to flood this dark world with your light. We long for the day when the darkness will be gone forever. But until then, please help us to pray for mission. Help us to send missionaries in your name. And help us to shine wherever you lead us to go. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amén.